This is Exchanges Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Stewart, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. This episode is being recorded at the Goldman Sachs Builders and Innovators Summit in California, where we gather some of the more exciting entrepreneurs at work today for discussions on building dynamic businesses. We have two of those entrepreneurs with us today. Greg Renfrew is the founder and CEO of Beauty Counter, and Sean Lee Ma is the co-founder and CEO of Zola. And we're also fortunate to have John Waldron, co-head of our investment bank. Welcome to you all. Thank you. Thank you. So, John, we're here at the Builders and Innovators Summit, which brings together entrepreneurs at really every stage of their careers. There's close to 100 different businesses here working in industries as varied as healthcare, education, financial services, consumer goods. And there are people who've grown up and gone to school really all over the world. What's common amongst the entrepreneurs you've met here at the summit? Well, first, I would say this is one of my favorite events that we do. Globally, I love the passion and the energy of the attendees, the entrepreneurs, and we go out of our way to really recruit and invite people that are doing fascinating things. So it's great to be here with two of those entrepreneurs today. I would say a couple of things. One is, and I said it, passion is a clear common trait that I notice when we sit with entrepreneurs and we listen to the stories and you start to understand the total commitment and relentless focus on whatever the mission is, which I think is energizing again for those of us that tend to deal with bigger companies and most of what we do at Goldman Sachs. So that passion, that purpose, that commitment is, to me, a very common trait. I also think the risk-taking element, the calculated risk-taking, I mean, it's not risk-taking in a wild sense, but it's a very calculated risk-taking perspective. And everybody that I've run into in the entrepreneurial world is comfortable with risk, embraces the risk, is not afraid to fail, which, again, I think is a real attribute of ultimate success, but certainly a common trait in terms of what we see. And I think fighting through rejection, again, not being fearful of failing and fighting through rejection and hearing no a lot and stumbling and getting back up and just having that total commitment to finding a way to make it happen, which I really respect. So Shan, Zola has quickly emerged as a go-to destination in the wedding space. How did the idea for Zola come about and how do you make the planning, the gift giving, the gift receiving experience better? The year we started Zola, which was 2013, it was that year that all my friends got married at the same time. And so the idea came about from going to a lot of my friends' weddings, having to buy a lot of gifts online for them and finding those e-commerce experiences, which were at that time at the large department stores, some of the most painful online shopping experiences I had ever had as a consumer. And I had worked in e-commerce and in product development for some time before that and just knew that we could do a much better job. So we set out to think about how can we reimagine what the wedding registry is for couples getting married today who are the millennial generation using design and technology so they can register for whatever they want, wherever they want it, on whatever device they're on. And we found this generation getting married is very different to previous generations. You know, millennials, they prioritize experiences. They want to register for more than just products in one certain store. They want it all, and they want it to be beautiful and personalized when it comes to their wedding and their registry, and they want to have full control over when they receive their gifts, and the shopping experience and the e-commerce experience and delivery should all support that. How did it take off so quickly? Well, it was a little bit of hustle and a little bit of the right product market fit. When I talk about product market fit, we really thought a lot about should we 
launch a wedding registry? What is it about wedding registries that we think could be a good business in the long term? And what we realize is that on average, people who are getting married invite 150 guests to their wedding. So if you're going to a wedding, and if you're getting married, by the way, in the US, for the most part, people do have to create a registry. If you're going to a wedding, you have to buy a gift. You have to check out the registry. So right there and then, you have 150 eyeballs on your product from that one couple that signed up for your Zola registry. And if it's a much better, beautiful product, they will be excited as the guests. They will tell their friends, they will use it themselves when they get married. And so that inbuilt virality into the product meant that it was able to be seen by many people very quickly. So we just had to focus on developing the right product, first of all, that when their guests saw it, they would have that, aha, I love this. I want to tell everyone about it too. So Greg, I'm tempted to ask you about the wedding space. You started a successful company, The Wedding List, and sold it several years later. But you're here today because you founded Beauty Counter, which is making great products, but you're also taking on an advocacy role to help make the skincare industry safer and healthier. So how does your work on the product side, making a great product, inform your work as an advocate and vice versa? I started Beauty Counter because I saw that there was a need to bring products into the marketplace that were both high-performing and significantly safer for health. Having learned that the EU had banned or restricted almost 1,400 ingredients from all personal care products, of which the United States has now banned 30. When I started Beauty Counter, it was 11. I felt there was a real opportunity and huge white space around high-performance products that were significantly safer. And so for us, you know, we've done a couple of things. We look at product as a solution. We look at commerce as an engine for change. And we formulate our products. There's about 1,600 ingredients that we choose not to formulate with. But we really are using the, you know, now 8.5 million products that we've sold in the marketplace as a vehicle to, you know, really create a movement that has taken us to Washington, where we've spent a considerable amount of time on our advocacy efforts. We've had about 500 meetings on the Hill, sent tens of thousands of letters and texts saying to members of Congress that we need more comprehensive and health protective legislation over our industry. And most people don't realize this, but we have a 60 plus billion dollar beauty industry in the U.S. that is governed by one and a half pages of legislation that date back to 1938. The FDA has no ability to recall product. Yeah. We are a company that is pro-commerce and pro-regulation, and we believe in our industry that regulation actually will not inhibit or stifle innovation, but quite the contrary. And I think given how quickly our company has grown, we've been able to prove that you can be you know, innovative within um, more restrictive measures. So you turn your consumers, though, into advocates. Mm-hmm. Is that something that draws them closer to the product and closer to the brand? I think at the end of the day, product is king. And so when we formulate our products, we always keep in mind performance. You know, you have to make sure that people love the product. So it's not enough to say we're safer and we're advocating on behalf of all American families. But I think that it is, when I think about Beauty Counter and those who have become raving fans, it's because we've used our community at large to really create this movement. We sell our products through network of independent consultants now 30,000 strong in addition to our e-commerce platform and retail and so using our consultants and our clients together has allowed us to really make great strides in Washington. Obviously you're both e-commerce veterans you've been around the industry for a while it's obviously undergoing dramatic change it's still a small part of the overall retail space and obviously you can't talk about retail without talking about the force that Amazon has brought to bear in the industry. What's it like operating in today's retail environment? And how do you distinguish yourself or differentiate yourself? 
Scott Galloway is a thought leader in this space, and he was doing an interview on the Recode Decode podcast recently with Kara Swisher. And what he talked about was that Amazon is great at shopping for items that you would consider in the tedious category. So if you're shopping for things that are very straightforward commodity goods, Amazon is a great place to do that. What they are not strong at, and this was his statement, is that they aren't the place to go for joy items and for joy shopping. Our category at Zola is we are in the wedding space and it is an area that is all about joy. So we focus on how can we create an experience for both the newly engaged couples as well as their guests that lets them discover and love and have joyful shopping experiences. The average amount that a couple spends on their wedding today across the country on average is $30,000 on one day. That's a lot of joy. That's a lot. (laughs) That's extensive joy. (laughs) And it's all because they really care about how they're going to put together that day, how they're going to put together an experience that's really special for themselves, their family, and their friends. And they care about every single piece and the brands that they're picking represent who they are as a couple and their future lives together. And so brand is one area where we win. Joy is an area we win. And then the last area is focus. So we have specific features we've built from day one in the Zola experience that are very registry-centric that couples want. Um, that would be very hard for a bigger giant like Amazon to replicate. And so that is our moat. And over time, we build more and more wedding planning tools so that you plan your entire wedding in one place on Zola. And there's little reason that you want to then start to register elsewhere. Greg, how about you? When I started Beauty Counter, I was really focused. I came out of traditional e-commerce and retail. I knew all the heads of the department stores had worked within those as well as, you know, on e-commerce businesses. And I think the easiest thing for me to have done would have been to place a phone call to one of the CEOs of one of these department stores to say, I want to distribute our products through your stores. And I, I never placed that phone call because I really felt that the entire consumer market was shifting. It was going direct. Consumers want to shop brands directly. They want to be able to shop your brand when they want, how they want, where they want, and they want a direct relationship with you. And I think we as the brand really want to have that relationship with our consumer. I already know before I launch a product exactly how it's going to perform. I know what they want. I know what they're looking for. I know how they want to shop with us. And so having an intermediary, like a traditional department store or specialty store, I think is kind of over. And so for us, we consider ourselves a direct retail brand. It's a phrase that we came up to, direct to consumer through multiple channels. And I think the entire market is going that way, you know, where it's no longer an option to I shouldn't say it's no longer an option. I do think it's an option to sell through traditional retail, but I think that model is kind of over. And so I think that the entire market is going to continue to shift to peer-to-peer selling, individual influence, whether that's bloggers or vloggers or direct relationships with the brands through e-commerce platforms. And so I think to be really focused on where the industry is going, you need to be focusing on having a direct relationship with your consumer. Some pure e-commerce companies have developed a retail presence. Is that something that you've thought about? We've tested both multi-branded retail scenarios. Like we did a test last year with Target and we've done things with J.Crew and others, but we've also done some of our own wholly owned pop-up shops. And what we found is, again, is that people do want to be able to interact with your brand in a variety of ways in different times and places. And so I do believe that the physical retail will continue to exist, but it will look different than it used to. And I don't think consumers are necessarily going to retail outlets to have them edit down selections for them. They want to do the editing themselves and they want to shop their brands directly. 
John, you've watched this space for a long time, and we talk at Goldman about being nimble, but these kind of companies have to be super nimble. How have you seen firms adapt and maintain their ability to change and go with the shifts in technology and consumer preference? Well, I think one of the things that's amazing about some of these entrepreneurial startups that we have the opportunity to get to know is how often and how quickly they can pivot when they see that their original idea or the original plan may be met with resistance or may not be what they thought it was. That ability to maintain the flexibility and, as you say, the nimbleness to realize that and move fast and shift is, to me, a real hallmark of successful entrepreneurs. I mean, I think about Warby Parker, who actually is here with us at our summit, who started out as a clear direct-to-consumer player who really didn't have any retail desire other than possibly one store as a marketing ploy in, in New York and has now shifted the model to where retail is a very big component of how they're prosecuting their business plan. So it's not that they're giving up on direct-to-consumer, quite the opposite, but they're using the retail model to kind of drive their business as a complement to the online platform. Similarly, you think about Slack, which is a really fast-growing, up-and-coming company, quite a sizable company at this point, who started as an online video game platform and then shifted when they realized that was an intensely competitive industry and they weren't very well positioned and shifted into this corporate messaging platform and now one of the largest corporate messaging platforms in the world. And that was a pretty nimble shift and really, frankly, set them up to succeed. I think that ability to maintain flexibility and that willingness to continue to make change when necessary and be nimble is very important. Talk a little bit about outside capital investments. How have you thought about that? How's it changed your strategy? What are the benefits? What are the downsides? Maybe, Greg, start with you. When I started my first company in the late 90s, I had a business proposition that was so new to the marketplace, I had a really difficult time raising capital and ended up going with the wrong investor and subsequently ended up selling my company too early. We had a sort of a forced sale to Martha Stewart, which for all intents and purposes was a success in, in, by many measures, but for me, it wasn't the outcome that I had hoped for. And so when I started Beauty Counter, I knew that I needed capital because when you're trying to recreate products from scratch, many products. We now have about 140 SKUs. We're manufacturing. We're manufacturing. We're doing the research. We built the team. And it was a multi, multi multi-million dollar proposition for us. So sadly, I didn't have all that sitting in my bank account. (laughs) So I had to go to Axel Capital. So for me, you know, what I did this time around was I was extremely choosy. And I think that the mistake that many entrepreneurs or certainly first-time entrepreneurs make is that they're always on defense as opposed to saying, if you have a really good idea, there is ample capital out there. And so cash is cash. What you need to figure out is who is the right investor at the right time. And I do think people also become so consumed by valuation that they choose the highest bidder as opposed to the right partner. So for me, when I launched Beauty Counter, I focused on individuals in the beginning, many of whom you know, were the heads of private equity firms who could make significant investments as individuals. And then we moved on to TPG Growth as our first primary significant investor in our Series B. And I think that platform has allowed us both flexibility as with the individual investors and then having a firm like TPG Growth, who we've had a true partnership with, has really allowed us to propel this business and move forward at a very fast clip. At Zola, over the last three years, I've raised over $40 million in VC funding. So the Series A partnered with Thrive Capital. That was all about how can we get to show product market fit Then the Series B was led by Canvas Ventures, which was very focused on how can we prove and improve and show great unit economics. And then the C, most recently last year, led by Lightspeed, was all about market expansion and growing, uh, capturing not just the wedding registry market, which is $19 in the U.S., but going after the bigger wedding market, which is $90 in the U.S. And at each stage, we've tried to be disciplined about 
how can we hold ourselves to meet and beat the last projections that we showed at the last fundraise? And because we've been able to show that at every round, have been successful at gaining interest for future rounds. VC funding requires a certain commitment to sign up for. We will be building a multi-billion dollar business, and it requires a discipline to stay focused on that goal. So, John, you've counseled a lot of companies as they've grown. How do you keep that small company culture, the distinctive culture that a startup has, and preserve that as you get bigger and get to scale? I would say a couple things. One is, and we believe this deeply at Goldman Sachs, culture is critical to any successful institution, entity, whether it's profit or not for profit for that matter. And I think there's a couple important elements that I see most successful entrepreneurial companies focused on. One is really defining what's the mission. And keeping it simple, I think, is an important element because you could certainly define a mission that's too complex for anybody to rally behind. And then it's really an evangelized, sort of an evangelical focus on telling the mission over and over again to your employees. And as you scale and you get bigger, you have to re-evangelize in many ways to the new employees and continue to tell your story and not forgetting that while you know your story, your employees need to certainly understand what you're driving towards and you have to remind them constantly. So I think that's a really important thing. And I think it's just kind of that consistent adherence to a set of values and a mission that you're focused on and and what's the end goal that you're driving towards. And you do have to communicate that constantly. So I think it's transparency and communication. And as you get bigger, you have to do that in different formats, whether it's town halls or, you know, other formats that you develop. And so I think most successful startup companies that become bigger and scale are really adept at maintaining a communication strategy with their employees and keeping that mission statement kind of front and center and never, you know, never wavering from it. We heard a lot about the war for talent here and how we're close to full employment in this country, and there's a lot of skilled jobs that are going unfilled. How do you position yourself, Sean, maybe start with you, but like, how do you position yourself as an employer of choice, and how do you keep people in a very competitive environment? What are the tricks to that? There's been two ways we've been able to really capture and retain the best talent in New York here at Zola. One is... Myself and my co-founder learned a great deal from the previous startup that we worked at together at Guilt Group. And we feel like the most valuable thing for those four years was all the lessons we learned of what went well, what did not go well, which have served as the best guideposts to improve upon that at Zola. And we talk a lot to our team, whether it's when we make offers or even when they've been there for four years, about what are the things that they're learning while they're with us, that we can apply to both improve Zola, but that they can take with them in whatever they want to do in the future. That's first and foremost, we want to develop a company of entrepreneurs so that they can feel entrepreneurial at Zola. And then one day we would love nothing better than for them to go off and start other great companies. As you did. Yes, exactly. And then the second thing is, I think we offer a rare opportunity to work with the best designers and technology thinkers in New York to reinvent what it means for a couple to be moving from the single life into their first year of their newly wed home. And that life change is one that is so important that people typically find very stressful and painful. And we have really tried to make it one of the most fun and memorable times in a couple's life. And so our goal is to continue to help at every point in that journey from the day someone gets engaged through to their first year in their new home. 
And our employees are extremely excited by that. And our tagline at Zola is, we are the company that will do anything for love. And we see that every day in what they voluntarily think about or do or ideas they implement. Greg, how about you? I mean, it's a competitive environment, and and you're hiring a lot of different kinds of skill sets. So how are you able to keep that brand consistency? It's interesting because I think from day one, Beauty Counter, everything we've done has never really been done before, and it was challenging both from a cultural standpoint and hiring standpoint because I had to put together our hardcore environmental health activists and makeup artists and direct sales people and retail people and e-commerce and you put all these people together and it was It's not a group that works together. It's not a group that, you know, in in previous companies that I've either worked for or I'd started, you know, everyone was sort of cut from the same cloth to some extent and these were people who had really polar opposite views on the world at times and so it was challenging in the beginning. I think in terms of bringing in the right talent, first of all, I think, you know, we've all learned from our mistakes early on at Beauty Counter as someone who was new to Los Angeles, and, and there wasn't a lot of operating talent in Los Angeles. It's changed dramatically over the last decade. But when I first started the company six and a half years ago, there weren't a lot of operators out there. So I was constantly struggling to find great talent. Everyone was transactional. Now I think that's shifted, as you've seen a lot of companies emerge over the last decade. But I think for us, you know, I always say to people, if you get the job, don't be an idiot. Take the job. Because this is a company that affords you the opportunity to create something that will be very rewarding financially while simultaneously having significant social impact. And I don't think there are enough companies out there that are affording people that opportunity to really make a difference in the world and to leave a lasting legacy while simultaneously building something that will be financially rewarding. And so I do think that people who join us, they believe in our mission. They understand that we're genuinely trying to get safer products into the hands of everyone. Whether those are beauty counter products or someone else's, we're trying to shift a whole market. And I think we're able to attract talent because of that and because they've seen this growth trajectory. And they know that we're focused on them. And as John said earlier, I think from day one, even in the interview process, is consistently communicating what you're trying to achieve so that when someone does join you, they are the right type of talent for the company that you're building. So, John, what kind of challenges do you see companies like Beauty Counter and Zola at this stage in their development face? You know, I think maybe it's a little bit about when Goldman Sachs meets companies like this, but most of it revolves around fundraising scaling the business and sort of transitioning from startup to more mature company trying to figure out how to become either a public company at some point or a much larger private company, but continuing to fundraise and create capital that'll lay the groundwork for that growth over time. And I often find companies underappreciating how much capital they need to get to points A, B, and C, and sort of thinking a little bit more like what's right in front of them as opposed to thinking longer term the advice we often give is take the money when the money's there. And right now, as an example, we're in a wonderful environment to raise capital. And so we're trying to continue to counsel companies to take the capital when it's there because it's not always like this. And if you're thinking longer term and you have more capital, you have more flexibility to make decisions that can really create value for you over time. So I think certainly the fundraising dynamic is a challenge that we often find in companies like this and we spend a lot of time on. And then I think there's also, the last thing I'd say is that shift from particularly the entrepreneur founder who may have had a brilliant idea and done a phenomenal job getting that idea to a place where it worked and it had real passion around it and attracted a lot of attention to actually starting to operate and figure out how to scale the business. And those skills can often be very different. So we find it's the rare entrepreneur that can do both. There are many, but it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. So often you find successful 
companies that find a partnership where there's a more operating type executive and a more visionary type founder, but those marriages are also hard to get right. So those are challenges and, and we see a lot of them and some of them work really well. And when they work really well, it can be an enormous propellant to uh, company success. So where do you see your companies in five years? The challenges that John described, the ones you're seeing, and where do you want to be in five years? So I like to look at it as how many people are coming to the Zola site to plan their wedding and register with us. So about a year ago, we were somewhere between the 20th to the 30th most visited wedding site in the U.S. Right now, a year later, we're the fifth most visited wedding site. You'll be number one. Exactly. Long. Next, this it's time inevitable. next year. Yes. Greg, how about you? The future for Beauty Counter, to me, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, I mean, I think we are building a business that we hope will last the length of time. We believe that we have an opportunity to really disrupt and innovate a category that is ripe for disruption. I think we're already doing that. I think that Beauty Counter is the indisputed leader in clean beauty. And I think that the incumbents are starting to realize that. We heard today, disrupt yourself every five or 10 years. That's what the larger companies have to do. They have to actually try to think about how to disrupt themselves. I mean, you're disrupting them, but they're going to have to continually go back and try to disrupt their own models because the models are changing. Absolutely. And I mean, I say that to our team in Santa Monica. I always say, you know, some people are younger that don't remember this, but I said, you know, remember when Madonna had her reinvention campaign like every couple of years Madonna was emerged as a completely new artist and I said to him we're coming up on our five-year anniversary we better look really different than we did the past five years in the next five years and so guys we don't have one second to rest on our laurels we need to reinvent right over again and I think that's what you have to do to stay on top of the game awesome that was great thank you so much for joining us thank you for having us thank you that concludes this episode of exchanges at Goldman Sachs we hope you join us again next time This podcast was recorded on October 19th, 2017. The information contained in this recording was obtained from publicly available sources and has not been independently verified by Goldman Sachs. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. This recording should not be relied upon to evaluate any potential transaction. Goldman Sachs is not giving investment advice by means of this recording, and this recording does not establish a client relationship with Goldman Sachs.